The Democratic Party wants somebody new. They're, they're tired of, of the recycled politicians. And then there were two. That's free. That's fine. Nikki Freed makes it official. When I win this primary and come out of this primary, the momentum will be behind us. Democrats divided for governor. We do want to take on DeSantis, and it takes resources to take on DeSantis. This hearing will come to order. Taking it to Capitol Hill. Never for a moment did I think that he would be murdered in his English class. Parkland parents take on senators. We cannot focus on school safety only when a tragedy happens. Over gun safety. Juneteenth is a celebration of freedom. It's a celebration of liberty. Juneteenth weekend. To us, I believe, just as important as July 4th. The history of freedom translated to the present. It's the Juneteenth Father's Day Summer's Eve edition live this week in South Florida. Good morning, welcome, happy Father's Day. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the race for Florida governor. Who will be the Democrat to oppose Ron DeSantis in November? After Nikki Freed officially filed paperwork as a candidate this week, her camp unveiled an internal poll that suggests she and Charlie Crist are much closer than previous polling, endorsements, and fundraising might suggest. Florida's agriculture commissioner and now Democratic candidate for governor right there with us live. Good morning, Nikki Freed. Nikki, good, good morning. morning. We're good morning and happy Father's Day to everybody out there. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, we're going to get to the poll results in just a minute. But first, the primary question. Why do you want to be the governor of Florida? You know, I want to be the governor of Florida because I want an opportunity to unite us, to bring everybody together, to make sure that there's somebody who's focused on the economic issues that are happening across our state. You know, I, as I travel our state, whether it's down in Key West or Central Florida or North Florida, everybody's got the same issues. Uh, and that's a fact that the economy right now in the state of Florida is failing them. And unfortunately, we've got a governor who's spending most of his time dividing us and pinpointing um, and putting people against one another. And that's not what a governor is supposed to do. Governor is supposed to inspire, bring people together, give people economic opportunity, not attack other fellow Floridians, which is what he does every single day. You've been with us uh, several times in the past couple of months, and as this race progresses, and I hope you will be with us more, um, but this really is the first time since, A, Annette Tadeo switched races, so mm -hmm. now you are, um, there are other people in the race, but essentially this race is between you and Charlie Crist. And you released, your camp released this poll this week that suggests that it's a pretty close race, and, and I will say what I took away from listening to the conversation was a couple of things. This sort of gives direction to the message we expect to hear from you over the next month before the primary. And that is, um, for Democrats, the essential question is, who can beat Ron DeSantis? That's what I hear from the Democrats. And number two is, there are 20, almost a third of the people who will be voting are NPAs, no party affiliations. Mm -hmm. And for them, they are looking for someone, according to this poll, who's not a politician. So is that, that seems like it's gonna be framing your race. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, to, to a certain extent, you know, that Democrats, without a doubt, number one priority, as I'm calling people across the state, is they want to beat Ron DeSantis. And I'm our best shot. You know, I've been taking on Ron for the last three and a half years. I've been in those battles with him. I'm a policy wonk, um, but I'm also a fresh perspective as a Democrat. Um, I'm somebody, again, I talk about this all the time. My mom is a diehard Democrat, a teacher for 25 years. My dad is a diehard Republican. And that really is an opportunity to show people that there is a different way of leading. And so Democrats want somebody who is a proven winner, um, somebody who's going to stand up for their convictions, which I've done my entire life growing up in Miami, doing soup kitchens and volunteering at Camilla's house and Habitat for Humanity when I was younger. They want somebody who's a true Democrat who is going to be able to be in the trenches, take it to Ron DeSantis, and show the people of our state that there is a more common sense way of leading our state, which is still very purple um, based on all the things that we have seen. And I just yeah. won in 2018, um, flipping a seat by almost a million votes. Yeah, well, maybe mildly purple, but getting increasingly red, according to results we have seen. Here you just uh, use this term, a recycled uh, a politician, clearly referring to Charlie Crist. I mean, Charlie Crist is experienced, and he has been around, served in all kinds of positions, uh, but he says he's not done. Why should he be done? Look, you know, Charlie's a nice guy. But this the time of today is that we need somebody who's going to stand up for what we believe in. You know, democracy is on this ballot. Civil rights are on this ballot. Women's right to choose is on this ballot. Um, gay rights. And unfortunately, Charlie has been on the wrong side of every one of those issues as a Republican, as an independent, as a Democrat. And at the end of the day, um, we need to be passing the baton to the next generation. And, and that's me. And that's somebody who is, has always stood up for what we believe in. And, and Charlie's got a lot of explaining and unfortunately has refused to do any real debates. Uh, I've asked for five uh, and he's only agreed to one, uh, including just one, which is Telemundo. And he says, well, isn't that two English and Spanish? He's so disconnected with what is happening on the ground and what the Democrats need and what they want. Um, so no, this is no longer Charlie Chris's time. Uh, it's time to pass the baton to the next generation and somebody who's gonna be a true fighter for democratic ideals. Okay, so so that said, I wanna say, and yet, uh, Charlie Chris has been racking up some serious endorsements. Mm -hmm. He's got the money advantage. And, and one endorsement really sticks in my head that I wanna talk to you about a little bit. This is a man, to your point, who's been a Republican, who has been independent and is now a Democrat. Um, as a Republican, he was very pro-school choice. He advocated voucher expansion and charter school. And yet, earlier this month, the teachers, both locally, the unions locally and statewide, gave their endorsement to Charlie Crist. So, you know, t take that. And then also listening to you talk about your quasi-conservative creds in a way, and it, and it seems like the two of you in a Democratic primary are are sort of trying to appeal to Republicans too. Explain. No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. You know, the reality is, you know, I don't know why, you know, the, the teachers unions, you know, decide to, you know, what, what their internal decision points were. But I can tell you that I'm still getting plenty of phone calls from teachers uh, from both Miami and, and Broward and Palm Beach and across the state who are with me, uh, regardless of the union's endorsement, um, because they know that I've been in the trenches. Um, I represent a Broward school board for almost eight years, walking those halls, uh, protecting public interest um, in our public schools as a product of Miami Palmetto Senior High. Um, 
Um, so I've been in those trenches. And look, what I have been able to do, not just my entire life, um, you know, again, I was a past public defender, fighting for homeowners during the foreclosure crisis, fighting for our foster care children. And then the last three and a half years, being our standard bearer as a Democrat, kicking the NRA out of my office, um, developing a new uh, cannabis industry, the hemp industry, um, pushing for legalization. So what my, my platform and what my ideals are is that across the board, um, the issues that I'm fighting for are the issues that are important to the people of our state. And that's what's important is that I'm listening to what's happening on the ground. I'm listening to what the what people are wanting out of their elected officials. And everything that I'm hearing are things that I've been fighting for my whole life. And I'm just taking this fight to a bigger fight, uh, which is the governor's office and making sure that the people of our state have a governor who is going to listen who's gonna bring people together and is gonna fight for the issues that are important to them, like the economy, like education, like the environment. Yeah, Nikki Freed, uh, let's talk for a minute about abortion in the state of Florida and about you and Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist, as a Republican, uh, always says he was pro-life, you know, and yet he favors a woman's right to choose, and he still does. As the governor of Florida, he vetoed a bill that would have uh, required a 24-hour waiting period for a woman to get an abortion. So he's maybe trying to juggle two things and, and, and make them equal, but in fact, uh, he, he says he is strongly pro-choice. You know, Michael, and I thank you for actually bringing up this issue, um, because look, we know that if, in fact, abortion gets banned here in the state of Florida and Roe gets um, overturned, that there's going to be a lot of, of women who are going to be struggling, um, who are going to be uh, you know, forced to, to have children, um, are going to or have to go through um, illegal abortions. That's dangerous. That's really dangerous. And we need a, somebody who's going to stand up and always. Charlie has been all over the place, including still calling himself pro-life. And, and the reality is, you know, talking about that piece of legislation that he vetoed when he was governor, let's also be really fair about why he did that. He did it after he left the Republican Party and was running as an independent and was trying to take votes away from Kendrick Meek. Um, so there is plenty of stories to say, you know, he was doing this for political opportunities, not because he believes in the woman's right to choose. We need right now somebody who has always been on the right side of choice. Uh, and I have been saying that for my whole entire life. And, and these are the times when you need somebody who's going to be able to go in there, say that I'm going to put the full weight of the governor's office behind a constitutional amendment to protect a woman's right to choose. I've been in the trenches, and this is the problem with Charlie. He's been on every side of a conversation. And how can we as Democrats and how can we as Floridians trust that if he was to get there, that he's going to do what he says because he continues to flip on issues every single day. And this is one that is just way too important to hope that he's going to be on the right side. Look, the American people were lied to um, by our Supreme Court justices during their confirmation hearings. And now we're going to trust Charlie to protect my rights. I'm sorry, but that's just not how it's going to happen. So uh, we, we actually are up against a break, but I just before we let go of this abortion issue, I just want to delve into uh, just one more question about it. The, so the new law passed in Florida. Well, while we wait for the Supreme Court to issue an official opinion, the focus absolutely, to your point, is on the states right now. And in Florida, this new law now leaves choice legal only for the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. And that was passed by right down party lines and as a conservative legislature. What, what can you do in that kind of scenario as governor to, to change that calculus? 
You know, look, I know that there's a lot of moderate Republicans that were in those chambers that behind closed doors came up to me and other members of the Democratic Party that wanted to, to soften it, at least put exceptions in there for rape and incest and sex trafficking victims. Um, but unfortunately, the will of, of Ron DeSantis outweighed those. So when you cut the, the head of the snake off, um, everybody else, you know, the rest of the, the body dies and there are going to be opportunities for us to change it. Here's also a really important fact that we know that there's already at least one or two lawsuits that have been started. Um, against this 15-week abortion ban. And I know that the power of the governor of whether or not when we win in the lower courts and whether or not to appeal the case or, or to let the lower court you know, uh, sit is going to be a very big deciding issue of who's, who's governor, who's going to appeal it. And unfortunately, we have a Supreme Court justice right now that the, the chief judge is somebody that Charlie appointed who was praised by the conservative right when he made that appointment. And so we cannot let it get to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court will have a lot of power in order to make a decision of whether or not our right to privacy that's in our Florida constitution um, is gonna protect that woman's right to choose. And so not only would it be able to, to maneuver through the legislative process, but also through the judicial process. So what I did as commissioner was able to change sides when it came to a preemption on gun safety and go with the side of our mayors and our, our city and county commission who sued on preemption of guns. And last week we had the oral arguments for that case. So there's a lot of power that goes into the governor's office if utilized correctly and certainly being able to work with the Republican legislature and making sure that they understand yep. that this was not what the people wanted right. and certainly not in the right direction. Nikki Fried, hold on. Many things to still to talk about with you. We'll be back with uh, Nikki Fried in just a minute. On this Sunday, this Father's Day, we are talking to Florida Secretary of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Nikki Freed, candidate for governor. Uh, Nikki, let me ask you about reporting your financial worth. You have to file disclosure papers. And just before you got into the governor's race, you amended your previous report to show that you had unreported earnings of $351,480, a lot of money. In 2018, you amended your financial disclosure. You had said you had earned $84,000. You actually earned $166,000. How do you explain these discrepancies? Well, thank you again for asking that question. You know, we went through all my financials and as we recognized that we made a mistake, that I was actually going off the wrong reporting dates um, and only a shorter uh, snapshot. So we saw them, uh, we made the changes because we again wanted to be transparent uh, with everybody. Uh, and again, that's what you should expect and, and ask for for your elected officials, that if they find mistakes or they've made a mistake, uh, that they own up to it, they make the changes. Uh, and that's what we did. And so we, we made those changes changes after recognizing that we had made a mistake and I have and it was on me um, that when we first again I'm not a career politician it was the first time that I had filed financials and thought that it was a snapshot of the current year and not the previous year and then made the same mistake the following year so we made those changes um, making sure that we are transparent and above board on everything you know this uh, back to a couple of issues that that we would like to get to this election is now so much focused on gun safety again Uvalde and Buffalo and shooting since and now and now Congress grappling with trying to make gun law um, when Charlie Chris was with us a couple of weeks ago he unequivocally stated he wants a ban on assault rifles and he would via executive order ban assault rifles in Florida if he has a day one in the governor's mansion. Can you uh, comment on that and, and perhaps share what you might or might not do? 
Well, first of all, I, I think that's, um, again, Charlie going full circle. He was uh, known as the NRA's uh, governor and elected official for most of his career, including putting the NRA's head, uh, Marion Hammer, as in the Women's Hall of Fame. Um, and he knows that he can't do that on day one. That's not a power of, of the executive uh, office. What I would do is, you know, what I've been saying, you know, what could I my, my track record as, as commissioner? Um, kicking the NRA out of my office, um, closing um, any of the loopholes that are inside of the concealed weapons program, making sure everybody's got a complete and thorough background check, been standing next to legislators for the last three and a half years as they put forth uh, legislation, whether it is background checks on ammunition, getting rid of ghost guns. Um, and there's a lot of work that can be done. And so when they passed in 2018, the Marjorie Stillman Act, that should have been the, the bottom and, and not the top. There's a lot of more work that needs to be done, um, including obviously mental health, but also you know, making sure that we're getting rid of some of these high capacity magazines, getting rid of the assault weapons um, that are on the streets and making sure that we're going after where the money is. I would have to imagine from everything that I have researched that currently today, Florida is still investing in part of our pension fund and some of these gun manufacturers. So there's a lot of things that when you are laser focused on protecting our, our kids and our families, you know, as I as I, I've heard so many of these heartbreaking stories of, of not just survivors and, and families who have lost loved ones and gun violence, but it's also too. It, we have to be also very understanding that it's not just the mass shootings. That every single day, and I've talked to so many of our our parents in the black communities that are losing their their children every day in what's happening on the streets. That's why I wear you know these these two bracelets, which are bullets for life, every day to remind me that this issue is bigger than just mass shootings. Um, this issue has to go down to that we need to change the culture of our, of our country and culture of our state. And we've done that before. Look what happened with the truth campaign on, on tobacco smoking. You know, tobacco used to be a cool thing to do. Now you ask this younger generation and they think it's disgusting and they would never touch a cigarette. That's what we have to be doing with guns. And unfortunately, we are seeing a Republican Party that has more embraced the NRA and that, that sacred um, endorsement and holding up guns um, in, in their commercials. And we've got to change that conversation. Because look, at the end of the day, we can put all the laws on the books that we want to. But if we don't change literally the hearts of America and change the way that we're viewing guns, you know, with all the laws and the books could be there, but until we start looking forward to some of these aspects that we need to be changing, we're still going to see gun violence. Can I, can I just ask a, a, a quick follow-up? Your purview as Agriculture Secretary is concealed uh, weapons licenses. Uh, the governor, DeSantis, just vetoed 80-plus more positions uh, to do those checks. Um, how, where do you stand on constitutional carry that this governor obviously favors? You know, and that's exactly why he, he vetoed my 83 positions, because he's in favor of open carry, um, which is so dangerous. Um, I've talked to police officers on the streets, asking them their opinions, and they said, look, this is going to make it more difficult for us. When we go onto a scene, we don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are. Um, there's intimidation when if somebody's walking around uh, with an open carry. And it went, let me just have a very clear example. This year alone, my department has rejected 7,000 either renewals or new applications because they either failed the background check, failed getting the course requirements, or other types of statutory requirements necessary to have a concealed weapon. Those 7,000 individuals would be able to open carry under a DeSantis administration. That is very dangerous 
for our state, for our law enforcement officers, for people that are on the streets. Um, so I am completely opposed to open carry. Uh, and unfortunately, the governor, in a time like this, he wants to go even more extreme. Um, the people of our state do not want open carry. Um, this is so out of tune. Oh, the governor is so out of touch with, with what is happening on yeah. the ground here in our state. And, and this is not something that I would sign. Yeah. Uh, Nikki, you yourself have a concealed weapons permit. Do you carry a gun with you and when? Um, so I do have a gun that I keep in my car um, so that when I am, am driving that it's in my car. Um, so that's where, where my gun is kept. Um, but this is for personal safety as, as somebody, uh, as a woman, um, that I feel that this is something that I, I felt very strong with, um, which is why it is important for, for everybody in this conversation to know that we're talking about sensible gun regulations. Um, I have been doing that as Commissioner of Agriculture, putting forth you know changes inside of the program that are sensible, making sure that we can retain fingerprints, make sure that we are getting notifications from uh, out of state that if somebody's been arrested that has one of ours. And we have suspended 35 Five, uh, licenses of those yeah. individuals who have been charged and arrested for the insurrection on January 6th. Still right. to this day, I, we can't get the governor to talk Nikki, about it. We, we are about out of time. I know that Glenna or I was going to ask you, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, uh, Florida was the only state in the country that did not pre-order the vaccine for children five and younger. If you had been governor, would you have ordered those vaccines? Of course. The fact that the governor didn't do this um, and was putting his own politics in front of the, the interests of our kids and our families. What happened to parental choice? Um, parental choice when it's good for him. Uh, unfortunately, we, you know, we had, we're in the situation that he's now created confusion um, and distrust in the information that's coming out. We had out, uh, a couple conversations with the White House this past week. Uh, we had a press conference in South Florida last week. We'll have a couple more of this upcoming to be transparent with the people of our state to show them that there are going to be vaccines available here in the state of Florida, but through federal programs, not state programs, because this governor wants to spew misinformation and non-science uh, related facts um, because they're not facts. And so, yes, if I was governor at this moment, without a doubt, we would have been pre-ordering them. We would have been putting out information. We would be doing stand-up um, pop-up locations, especially in some of our minority communities. Um, this is something that should have been gone through. And unfortunately, this governor just plays politics. You know, there are endless things we can talk about. We are up against time, and I hope you will be back. And for the record, uh, we have received a number of dates where your camp is good for debates, and we have reached out to Charlie Crist and hope to have you both on together very soon. Thanks so much. Thank Absolutely. you, Nikki. I'd welcome that opportunity. Have a great day, everyone. Thank All right, you. thanks so much. Gun safety takes center stage this week in Washington. And so does a parent from Parkland who's there in the fight of his life. Max Schachter is with us next. The push to get significant and bipartisan legislation for gun safety on a national level stalled in the Senate late this week over several details. The framework includes some of the unprecedented laws that were passed in Florida in 2018 after the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Max Schachter was among the parents who pushed through uh, for legislation and he is the uh, pushing for the uh, Alex and, and uh, Max Safety Act. He testified about it before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. He joins us now live. Uh, Max Schachter, great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so tell us about your experience testifying. We watched you on Wednesday. I thought you were effective. You made your case. But in fact, uh, your proposals for both LASA, as it's known through the acronym, and the Eagles Act didn't go anywhere. What happened? Well, right after Alex was murdered in the Parkland school shooting, I put my life on hold and have made it my mission to do everything I could to prevent this from happening again. And then I traveled this country to see what school districts were doing well. And what I found was that there are a lot of school districts that are taking school safety seriously. They're prioritizing safety and security, but uh, it's only happening in those, those school districts and the rest of the country didn't really know about it because if you look, you know, all these educators that signed up to be school educators and work in schools, they are not school security experts. And there really is only one place that I'm aware of that, that trains teachers in college to be school educators, and that's at the Indian River State College. They have a great program there that teaches teachers on school safety. But as we look around the country, there was really a lack of centralized school safety resources. So I came up with this idea after Parkland to create a federal school safety clearinghouse. And now we have it. It sits inside the Department of Homeland Security and it's the new federal school safety clearinghouse. I recommend all of your viewers to go to schoolsafety.gov where all educators, school administrators, and parents can find the best practices on what we need to do to make our schools safe. So there's a, a lot of great resources and grant dollars are housed on schoolsafety.gov. So the first bill that I talked about in my testimony was the Luke and Alex School Safety Act, and that codifies the federal school safety clearinghouse and turns it into law. And, you know, this is so important because um, after the shooting, I was just consumed with grief and anger because if we look at our history after these really seminal events that we've had in our country, after 9-11, we made the airplane safer. After the Oklahoma City bombings, we made the federal building safer. And in 1958, at the Lady of Our Angels church fire, 92 children died in a church fire. And that, after that, we made fire codes to prevent children from dying in a school fire, and no child has died in a school fire since 1958. And then there and was the, the Columbine shooting, and as I know you testified, uh, laws about school safety and, and guns should have changed then, but in fact they did not. It's been 23 years, Michael, since Columbine, and our children and our teachers continue to be murdered in our classrooms. And I think one of the reasons is complacency. You know, there are parts of this country that are really taking this seriously, but there are others that aren't. And I think that Broward County, uh, prior to Parkland, is would fit in that category. You know, Parkland was named one of the safest cities in the state. It's one of the reasons we moved here. And that is not true. I think we've come a long way. Schools are much safer now than when they were prior to the shooting. But a lot, of, a lot has to change and the mindset is important. We've got to get away from that mindset that it can't happen here. I never thought it would happen in Parkland. They never thought it would happen in Uvalde or Sandy Hook. 
And this can happen in any school. That's why it's key that every administrator understands that if your children and their teachers do not come home every day, nothing else matters. Max, I just want to preface the next question by saying on this Father's Day, we are very grateful that you're here and we honor you and we remember Alex. And, uh, and I just wanted you to know how profoundly grateful yeah. we are for you to be here with us today. Um, as you speak to lawmakers, not only locally, but in D.C., as you did this week, we had Tony Montalto, one of your colleagues, and a Parkland dad was on with us a few weeks ago, talking about these bills like the Luke and Alex Act and like the Eagles Act that he is also behind and what issues these seemingly very good and bipartisan bills what issues they're having getting through the legislatures. And his take on it was just extreme from right and left. The extremes are really putting a wrench in what could go forward. Would you comment on that? I think, I think Tony's spot on. You know, I think that, you know, it's been 30 years since we've had any gun safety legislation passed. And, and we, it's about time that, that our elected leaders do something. That's the reason we elected them is to make our country safer and and bills like the Luke and Alex School Safety Act and the Eagles Act, which reauthorizes the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center to focus on school safety are really key. They're not, uh, you know, controversial bills. They're really common sense pieces of legislation. I know in Congress, common sense really uh, doesn't have a place there, uh, but <laughs> But I think it's right, and we're not talking about infringe upon anybody's rights here. We're just, you know, when you look at the Luke and Alex School Safety Act, it's just a website of best practices and resources. I mean, my God, why why isn't that all in the in the gun safety legislation? And when you look at the Eagles Act, you know, the Secret Service uses threat assessments to protect the president. The Capitol Hill Police uses yeah. threat assessments to protect members of Congress. Our children deserve the same protection. And so I hope that both of these pieces of legislation will make it into the gun safety uh, new bipartisan bill. But it's about time that they did something for us. And that's the only thing that the 17 Parkland families and, and the Uvaldes and all of these horrible tragedies, we just don't want our children to die in vain and something positive to come from all this tragedy. Yeah, we hear you and agree with you. So hold on, Max Schachter, we have more questions for you. We'll be back in just a minute. Thank you. We are back with Parkland dad, Max Schachter, uh, Alex's dad, and we are talking to Max on the week that he has testified before a Senate committee uh, as they try to frame out this bipartisan gun legislation. And, and Max, one of the sticking points, as we understand it, a couple of sticking points, one of which is, is almost very confusing, and that is the red flag laws that actually was part of the Florida law four years ago that has been, by all accounts, very successful in allowing law enforcement to take temporarily weapons away from people who are deemed to be threats to others or themselves. Why, do you have insight on that? Why would that be a sticking point in, in this larger framework of gun safety? I'm a big supporter of red flag laws. I'm not sure what's happening in in those negotiations, but I think that you know we if you just look to what Florida has done, we have used our red flag law over eight thousand times. 
And red flag laws are, are really uh, an essential tool in, a, in their tool belt of what to do when you've got individuals that have uncontrolled anger and are mentally unstable and have access to firearms and are threatening to hurt themselves or others. This is really um, a critical tool that law enforcement needs. I think that every state should look to what Florida has done. I mean, we made some tremendous changes after the Parkland school shooting and red flag laws are one of them. But really, what you need to couple red flag laws with a, an effective threat assessment. And that's where the Eagles Act comes into place. You know, we had, there was a threat assessment done on the Parkland murderer in 2016, Glenna, mm -hmm. and the assistant principal that did it completely botched the threat assessment. And I think that if they had done it correctly, Alex and the 16 others would still be here today. The assistant principal had never done one in his 30 year career. He didn't have to fill out the paperwork, didn't know where it was. And that's why the Eagles Act is so important. The Secret Service does all that training around the country. And I've been there with them. I traveled with them. And their training has been so effective that after receiving that training, schools have actually used that training to prevent attacks on, on their schools. So I hope that the Eagles Act can be uh, you know, put into place and that bill can be signed to place and it can be included in the gun safety legislation. Because once they do that threat assessment, then you've got that red flag law. And I think red flag show, law should be in every state of the country. Yeah. Max, uh, we heard you after you had left the Capitol, or maybe you were still at the Capitol after your testimony, and, and you were critical of Republicans and Democrats for failing to really move forward on this. One of the Democrats who, in fact, stopped the Lhasa Act and maybe the Eagles Act was uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, and he had said that he did so, quote, because it could see more guns in schools. Uh, we need him to explain that. But why would he say that? Yeah, it was it was really hurtful that he did that because it was really disingenuous and factually incorrect that he would say that, you know, we created the Luke and Alex School Safety Act to codify the new federal school safety clearinghouse. And the clearinghouse is just a website of best practices where all the federal agencies that work on school safety from the departments of education, health and human services, justice and homeland security all work together to make right. sure that we've got the right best practices up on schoolsafety.gov. So it doesn't, it doesn't put more guns in schools. It doesn't increase the number of uh, school resource officers. It's just a website that schools and parents can go to. It doesn't mandate anything. There are no requirements. It's just best practices. 60 to 70% of the material on schoolsafety.gov is focused on mental health. So it's really not true at all. It's just a resource website uh, so I was really hurt by by what he said. And, you know, we thought that we had the best chance of getting this passed. Uh, this was two days after Uvalde, after right. 19 children and two teachers were brutally murdered in their in their classroom. And you can't pass a, a website bill. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. And and, and really, really upsetting. Max Schachter, best practices, to your point, have no politics, should have no politics. We always appreciate you, uh, and we will keep in touch for sure. Max, Thank thanks you. so much. Appreciate Thank it you, on this Father's Day.
All right, well, today is Juneteenth, the day that slaves in Texas were told in 1865 that they had been freed by the Emancipation Declaration. We're going to talk all about what that means now for South Florida with a civil rights icon, and that's next. Today is Juneteenth, marking the day 157 years ago that Union soldiers brought the news to enslaved black people in Galveston, Texas, that they had been set free. This is actually the second year Juneteenth is celebrated as an official national holiday, and that means celebrations and also reflection on how far or not we might have come in the fight for equality. T. Willard Fair is with us to talk all about that. President and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Miami is a veteran force for empowering young people and community building and friend to the program. So good to see you. Thanks so much. Tal Fair, great, great to see you. Thank you for your your time and thank you for your great work with the Urban League. I have seen some of it firsthand. So Juneteenth, when you and I spoke on the phone late this week, you said, I'm about the future, not about the past, but why not recognize some of the, the terrible things that have happened and the good things as well by black people in this country? Well, we gotta stop looking backwards. It's an insult to me to talk about Juneteenth when I know the real conditions that exist 150 plus years later. Uh, Juneteenth, and we're celebrating uh, when everybody else is concerned about high gas prices, baby formula shortage, runaway inflation, out of control border crisis. And we're gonna take time out to celebrate something that makes no sense when we're still further behind than we've ever been before. Uh, so we don't celebrate it. The only reason why I'm doing this, Mike Putney, is because I love you. Other than that, I would not even be on this. Wait, what am I, chopped liver? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> so, wait, so, so this is a, a celebration of freedom. I, I'm not sure that's, um, we want to call that, we don't want to celebrate freedom. That's like a July 4th thing. But to your point, this feels almost like, and you know, and you school us on this, this feels like a commemoration of a point in history that almost is so important to take as a launch point to see, well, where have we come and where do we, where have we not come and where do we need to go? Is that fair? Well, but this is not about that kind of conversation. This is about celebrating that uh, we were set free 147 years ago, plus time. So we're not talking about that. I don't want to talk about that at all, because once again, as I said, it makes no sense. When we look at where we are today, uh, we are worse off today than we've been in a long, long time. When we look at the conditions that we live in, uh, they are worse than they've ever been before. So how dare us talk about celebrating something called Juneteenth? Let, let me ask you, let me ask you this. In the, in the context of teaching about Juneteenth, we have just come off of a, a session where there is now a new law called Individual Freedom, which tries to frame how school children in Florida learn about race. And it's predicated upon hoping, trying not to make uh, specifically white children feel bad or feel guilty about the worst of American history when it comes to its black citizens. 
I want you to weigh in on that law and, and how it was framed and how should we be teaching history, black history specifically, in schools? It doesn't matter. It's not black history. We should be concerned about the fact that most of the black children can't read on grade level. So why should we take a side road to talk about black history? When we look at the educational outcomes, we're still further behind than ever before. So we ought to be focusing on the fact that we're not able to be competitive in the real world based on education, yeah. whether it's black history or American history. Yeah. The issue is, is that the number of black children who are behind today is greater than it was prior to Juneteenth. Well, let, let me just answer that in a way that uh, I believe that I am, re if I'm reading right, uh, the, the curriculum called critical race theory is predicated on the fact that there are still uh, ramifications of institutional racism in our country that are in place and, and perhaps some of the reasons why the, there isn't as much generational wealth in black communities or more poverty in black communities because of this institutional racism. A and that is what critical race theory, the curriculum in higher education, is predicated upon. Would that be relevant? No, it wouldn't be relevant because we keep talking about, quote unquote, institutional racism. I haven't seen it at all. So if it's alive, let me know so I can go kill it. Uh, we keep inventing things and not dealing with the reality. There is no institution in this community today where there is a planned effort on behalf of those who control it to discriminate against black folks, period. Uh, Town Fair, let me just point out for people who may not know you as I've known you for 40 years or so, um, you are, were a friend of Jeb Bush when he was the governor of Florida and you and he started a charter school in Liberty City. Uh, it was, I guess, one of the first, if not the first, and it was primarily directed to improve the education of young black kids. And more power to you and Jeb for doing that. What happened to that school? That school, it served as the catalyst for charter school movement in the state of Florida. We started out with some 69 children in the city of Miami selected from Liberty City, and here we are, uh, some 30 plus years later, 500,000 students of color have participated in choice. That effort was to make sure that people understood that black children ought to have access to choice, like all other children, and that we created a pathway to make that happen. We've done that, and I'm very proud of that. 500,000, that's a significant number. Well, it's a no, it's a huge number and it's a, a big factor, I think, in the last governor's race. In fact, uh, it was a factor in how African-Americans voted in the in the governor's race. You know, Absolutely. Let me, you know, uh, a talent. Let me just say for the record, I love you and I admire the work you've done. I've been on the Urban League campus. I have seen the beautiful apartments where single mothers live and you provide child care. Uh, uh, for their children so they these women can work. I mean, you, you've done some, some great work. But, you know, when you look and you're sort of saying, let's not look at past history, I'm thinking of the famous saying by George Santayana, those who cannot hit, remember history are doomed to repeat it. So shouldn't we be teaching and remarking and celebrating, you know, and, and also grieving over instances 
uh, in black history in this country. I'm not going to debate whether or not others ought to do it. If they want to do it, then do it. I'm just suggesting to you that at the end of the day, it's not going to make any difference. I'm suggesting to you, because it makes no difference based on our assessment, that we're not going to do it. I'm not going to celebrate uh, Black History Week. I'm black 52 weeks out of the year. <laughs> I'm not going to worry about, quote unquote, whether or not we are free. I know that I am free. So whether it happened in 1865 or 1863, I don't need to, have to reaffirm that today. And I I'm think not this, is, this is going to be a conversation that no one expected. Um, it is so good to have you. We celebrate you 52 weeks out of the year, and I totally feel the love in this room. Thanks so much. <laughs> we'll be right back. All right. We thank you so much for spending a bit of your Father's Day with us. Remember, we are online 24-7. And as always, stay informed, get involved. Happy Father's Day.